This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Monday, July the 11th, 2022. Keir Starmer wins. Whoever takes the Tory crown. Something odd has happened. Keir Starmer keeps on laughing. A search through the Mirror's photographic archive establishes that laughter is the Labour leader's least preferred facial expression. He usually goes for perplexed disbelief, as though a guest's dog has just done a poo on the new living room carpet. But now he's constantly delighted. He can't keep the big grin off his face. In fact, he's almost skipping. He probably hasn't been on the crack pipe or discovered opium. He's just smacked out on joy, this lad, because the Tory title race consists of all the stupidest, silliest people they could find. Having spent two years nailing Boris Johnson jelly to the parliamentary wall, a delighted Starmer said this morning, I'm glad to see the back of him. And it was no secret that while the two men had no liking for each other, Starmer actively loathed his opponent in the way only a lawyer faced with a liar really can. Now the race has begun to replace the Prime Minister without troubling the electorate over it, and Johnson has vowed not to support any of the candidates. On the face of it, this is because his support would be the kiss of death, but the real reason is that probably he doesn't possess the necessary grace. The real thing Johnson did to damage the chances of his successor was to promote those who thought what Brexit needed was more wishful thinking, and what Britain needed was three years of leadership from a man whose principal skill was generating headlines that were never quite stood up by the claims he made. That means the candidates with any public recognition, any record in government or any chance of donations to bankroll a leadership bid are all absolutely barking. Will it be the one who says he's fiscally responsible and wrote off £4.3 billion of fraudulent Covid loans while failing to convince his wife that tax was something rich people had to pay too? Will it be the one under investigation by the taxman? The one who doesn't know what the Donbass is? Will it be the one who thinks journalists asking her questions are creepy? Or the one who says he's a problem solver and has been utterly unable to fix the problem of train strikes? How about the one who turned barristers into striking militants? Or perhaps it'll be the one who pushed for a 1.25% increase in national insurance to pay for NHS backlogs as health secretary and now wants it cut when the backlogs are the worst they've ever been. While some are praising the Tories for what may be the most racially varied leadership race ever, it's got to be said it's about as intellectually diverse as a basket of toenail clippings. Exhibit A is Jeremy Hunt, a man who always looks like the only thought in his head is that mummy is waving a biscuit. In the six years since Brexit, the Conservative Party has been hollowed out. The grandees, the thinkers, those with experience, went in the first cull of those who weren't Brexity enough. It was then split into North and South in the 2019 election, with Red Wallers who want spending diverted away from the Tory heartlands, who don't, it lost its natural allies among the Northern Irish Unionists over the Brexit protocol, and it lost the ability to promote those on its backbenches who might dissent with a leadership that didn't realise that was the best way both to control them and to create a healthy, self-scrutinising government. There are no skills left, only egos. Promoting those with a lack of self-analysis led to the end of Johnson's premiership in multiple scandals that involved not wondering how things would look to others. And it also means that those who might replace him have inherited a similar inability to check their homework. 
Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, God bless him, decided against making a run after realising he either didn't have it or didn't want it, which shows he'd probably have been quite good at it. Those left with a space to run are people who think the inability to put petrol in their own car, questionable tax affairs and promises to cut public services even further when ambulances are waiting 27 hours to deliver a patient to A&E are slam dunk winners. And perhaps they're right. After all, they need to win only 100,000 or so votes from predominantly white wealthy men aged over 60 who live in the south of England. A bit of Brexit anti-wokery in a tax cut will probably go down with that lot like a 5pm gin and tonic. And the only variable will be whether they want to hear it from a man or a woman. But it's what comes after that which is making Keir grin like a tiger who knows what's for tea. Because when Theresa May was crowned, she had Brexit to do and a narrow majority which combined to make a general election necessary within a year. When the same happened to Johnson, he went to the country before five months were up. This time... The Conservative Party is more divided. The problems are worse. It's no longer just about Brexit, but Ukraine, the cost of living, energy and inflation. None of the contenders have the wits or plan for any of that. And in the case of the favourite, Rishi Sunak, we already have two years of evidence that it's all a bit beyond it. Liz Truss's bid so far is to be continuity Boris, which should send a cold chill down every Tory spine. And while Tory members and MPs still want a Brexiteer, that ship has sailed. They lost the last two by-elections on massive swings in Leave constituencies because Brexit doesn't matter as much as everything that's followed it. So Keir could be forgiven for buying in a mega bucket of popcorn, putting his feet up and enjoying what is going to be a sweet and salty race to the bottom for a party which long ago forgot the most important thing in politics – that what happens in people's homes matters more to voters than what happens in Westminster. Losing sight of that has meant the Tories have lost everything it takes to run a government or win an election. It's no wonder Keir is grinning and flinging around guaranteed vote winners like taxing private schools. The Conservative Party is about to give him the easiest job in the world. There's only one column this week. So here's some bonus material of some news reporting I was doing instead uh, from on 15th July 2022 from the Infected Blood Inquiry. Exclusive. Andy Burnham calls for charges against officials in infected blood scandal. Officials should face charges of corporate manslaughter over the deaths of up to 3,000 people due to contaminated blood, a judge has heard. Former Health Secretary Andy Burnham was applauded by victims and relatives as he told a public inquiry... I think the Department of Health and the bodies for which it is responsible have been grossly negligent of the safety of the haemophiliac community in this country. From there, I would say there is even a possibility that the CPS should be asked to consider charges of corporate manslaughter. He cited evidence of potential criminal offences where victims had their diagnosis hidden from them for 17 years and another where a teetotaler with liver disease was labelled a chronic alcoholic in medical notes. He added, I don't say that lightly. I've got a lot of regard for people in the Department of Health, but I think on this issue they've got it fundamentally wrong from the off, from the 1970s onwards. 
Now mayor of Greater Manchester, Mr Burnham was giving evidence about his brief period in charge of health before Labour lost power in 2010 and how he came to believe there was a criminal cover-up on an industrial scale within Whitehall. Infected blood and blood products were given to an unknown number of people in the 1970s and 1980s, with 5,000 haemophiliacs going on to develop HIV and hepatitis C. Around 3,000 are thought to have died as a result. A public inquiry now in its fourth year was shown evidence given to Mr Burnham by campaigners, proving that DOH officials knew as early as 1982 that imported blood products were likely to carry deadly disease. He said civil servants had misled ministers about the risks for decades and even put false statements into letters for him to sign while issuing insulting and appalling standard rejection letters to victims. He claimed infected blood, some of it from US prisoners, was used because a very clear decision was taken to carry on using imported blood products, I think, with a financial consideration in mind. He produced a 1982 document he said proved extreme negligence, which discussed the infectivity of batches of blood products and a lack of quality control. It states, It is therefore very important to find out by studies in human beings to what extent the infectivity of the various concentrates has been reduced by administering those concentrates to patients requiring treatment who have not been previously exposed. Mr Burnham said he was repeatedly given false lines by officials that there was no evidence of wrongdoing or prior knowledge and did not realise for his first six months as health secretary in 2009. You got this incorrect line and then a kind of whole heap of financial pressure, reputational pressure, media, why it shouldn't go any further, he said. I think embedded deep within the civil service psyche over not just the few years in question, but a number of decades, I would say, the response to this particular issue was primarily driven by a fear of financial exposure. That, in my judgment, describes all of the experience, the responses, the lines, everything came from that feeling originally. And so these letters, I think, are drafted with that primarily in mind, not with the needs of people who, through absolutely no fault of their own, had their lives utterly ruined. Mr Burnham was applauded by listening victims and families, as he said, the UK government has comprehensively failed the victims of infected blood, I would say, over five decades. The hearing was shown a memo drafted by officials asking for legal amnesty if they gave evidence to the inquiry about 6,000 sensitive documents with potential for criticism or embarrassment of former ministers and senior officials. It said, There is no evidence of any negligence or wrongdoing on the part of the department during the period in question, 1970 to 85. Nevertheless, given the subsequent destruction and loss of a number of files, there is considerable scope for embarrassment for the department if officials are asked to appear before the inquiry. The precise number of deaths is unknown, but the inquiry is expected to take evidence on it later in the year. Sir Brian Langstaff, who is leading the inquiry, is considering interim compensation to help survivors, many of whom have very poor health, before he reaches his final conclusions. Mr Burnham told the inquiry that when in power, officials also pressurised him to not increase compensation to victims ahead of the 2010 general election when there was a change of government. We were running out of road, is the polite way of putting it. We were trying to get something away and the department, I think, was trying to, well, it was trying to stop us, he said. I hope the department is uncomfortable rereading that when I was trying to do something which I believe I should have been doing in the public interest. Holding back tears, Burnham said... I would like to say sorry to everybody for being too slow to act. I wish I'd done things sooner. I do. I really do. But you can only act on what you know at the time and you can only change things where you can actually get hold of the evidence you need. He told the families, I would just like to say sorry I didn't do more. 
But we're here today not because of anything that I've done or that any other politician did. It was because you never gave up. Afterwards, he published an open letter to all five Tory leadership hopefuls saying their fight for Downing Street was delaying the issue and asking them to commit to increase the woefully inadequate existing compensation so that it could be enacted on the first day the next Prime Minister takes office. Mr Burnham linked the infected blood scandal to the plight of Britain's nuclear test veterans who were first exposed to radiation 70 years ago. He said, Why are people in this room, why are families across Britain still fighting for justice on this? Because there's too much control of these issues and you could name a whole heap of other issues. I mentioned Hillsborough today, but nuclear test veterans would be a very good kind of comparator with contaminated blood where you have thousands of people exposed to nuclear tests, not just without their consent or knowledge. These were servicemen largely, some women I think, but mainly the vast majority servicemen. No PPE, but they're still in the same position today. And this says something that's wrong here. He said on infected blood, hundreds of MPs over years were really working hard to prise the lid off and get something done. Very senior people and they couldn't. This inquiry is getting to the heart of something about the British state. Grenfell, Hillsborough, Bloody Sunday, nuclear test veterans. You can go through a long list because this pattern keeps repeating and something is wrong here in that the system, I think, has too much control. There's a case for very significant political reform to give elected representatives more power. He called for a Hillsborough law to give officials a statutory requirement to tell the truth and said it would have enabled Department of Health staff with concerns to come forward 40 years ago.